Trevor. And we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 86. We're going back for seconds for a double helping of the Boo Crew for the Thanksgiving holiday in a delicious convo with the architect behind the sound of the Oscar-winning film Get Out, and he's getting significant Oscar buzz for this year's phenomenal Us. We are pleased to have you sit down with the wonderful Michael Abels. Michael takes you through his incredibly inventive process and how he went from orchestrator and educator to being discovered on YouTube by masterful writer and director Jordan Peele to score what would be his first time composing for a feature-length film. Learn about the secrets of silence, the hunger for experimentation, the breakdown of the iconic hypnotism scene, creating the march for us, the importance of music in schools, and much, much more. Let's get terrified through the power of music. So if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. This is Michael Abels, and you have tethered yourself to another frightening episode of The Boo Crew. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is one of the most important film composers of our generation. He has been creating poignant music for concert and orchestra for years, including Global Warming, premiered by the Phoenix Youth Symphony in 1991 that has since been featured in over 100 performances. After watching the rescue efforts of the many courageous first responders and their outreach in the days after 9-11, he wrote Tribute, which became the first piece performed by the National Symphony following 9-11. He composed an acclaimed piece inspired by Martin Luther King called Dance for Martin's Dream in 97. He's been commissioned by the LA Opera for LA County High Schools, has created gospel arrangements, symphonies, and builds and inspires the next generation of composers as the former director of music for New Roads School in Santa Monica. Horror fans are familiar with his work as his music is the voice of the groundbreaking films of Oscar-winning writer-director Jordan Peele. At the time of release, this includes 2017's Get Out and 2019's Us. He's just won Best Horror Score at the Hollywood Music and Media Awards. He won Discovery of the Year for Us at the prestigious World Soundtrack Awards last month and was just announced as nominated for Best Score by the Hollywood Critics Association. His work is startling and unconventional. It's an adventure into the art of music for film. He breaks all the rules, has a hunger for experimentation and a gift for absolutely terrifying us through sound. We are honored to welcome Michael Abels. It's a pleasure to be here, especially after an intro like that. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for spending some of your time with us. As huge fans of your work, we are incredibly humbled, man. Thanks. I'm having a great time already. That's great. (laughs) Yes. So what got you interested in the world of composition and orchestration in the first place? Was there a particular piece of music that you heard, perhaps, or anything that set it off? Two things. One was um, Sound of Music. Do, re, mi. Yeah. Oh, wow. One word for every note by making it up like this, right? Yeah. That's, that seemed like a really fun little game to me as a kid. I thought, well, that's fun. You can make it up. You can rearrange the order and do whatever you want. And you get to hang out with Julie Andrews and swing from the trees in Austria. You know, that's super fun. Right. So uh, it was that. But then also my earliest musical memory is of this piece by... Edvard Grieg called In the Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. Mm. And if you think about it, it's a little horror movie. 
the kids go up into the fjords and there's a, a giant and he's evil and and he chases them out. And that piece of music, like I, I must have been younger than two. I don't know how in my memory is that I was in a crib. And it's crazy to have a memory wow. that, you know, you like, you don't know if it's real. Yeah. <laughs> but I know that my grandmother had this record and it had this piece on it. And I screamed bloody murder when that thing got so <laughs> going. That's a terrifying piece of music. Is and that the one? Dun, 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 yeah. 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 That one. That one. And it starts just mischievous, but it builds to this fever pitch. And I scream my head up. The reason I remember is because my grandmother wasn't sure why I was crying, you know, but like, I think she did it more than once before she figured out that it was the music that was like, doing it. Suddenly that story's become really ironic in my life. <laughs> you know? Oh my like, gosh. That's amazing. So now, now somewhere there are, there are babies crying like bloody murder to the score to us. <laughs> so, it's come full You'd be circle. proud of that. That's good. Absolutely. That's a good thing. <laughs> was there a first time that you noticed the dance that orchestration and music played with film. It's got to again be you know Sound of Music, Mary Poppins, yeah. like a little, my little kid. You know, other people's Little Mermaid. That was mine. As a little kid, I would sing all the time, like nonstop. I sang the scores to those and other. I would just sing all the time. Every song I loved, I just always was moved by music from the beginning. So the wow. path to actually becoming a composer. What did that look like? Was it something that started as early as high school? I remember trying to write something when I was about, about eight. It had a good start, but then I didn't know what to do later, which actually turns out to be the problem in all music you write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I ran into it in the first, I thought, now what? So, and I kind of lost, I didn't feel like I could do it. But then and when I was about 13, I tried to write something again and I was a little older and I thought, okay, you have, you know, you have to stick with this. So... I spent some time and I finished it and then and it was a piece for <laughs> this will sound so it's a piece for piano and orchestra. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> now wow. I had never written for orchestra before. But you know, when you're a kid, you're like, I'll just all right. Yeah, piano. why not? <laughs> right. Like Mozart did it, why can't I do it? Yeah. So I wrote this piece and then through through this amazing quirk, uh, just this lucky thing that would never happen, I got it performed. <laughs> I got this piece performed with a with a high school orchestra and I played the piano part. Oh wow. And I was hooked, you know, I thought, well, this is fun, <laughs> you know, it always just seemed like if someone told me it was hard, then I might have gone thinking, but I just thought, well, and I had had piano lessons since I was like about four years old. So I was playing okay. the piano and, and they were very, you know, standard piano lessons. So I was playing Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and that all seemed normal to me. So the idea that I would write for something like that just seemed like I was doing that thing that I was learning about anyway. What was the feeling that you got the first time you heard an orchestra play something that you wrote? Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's a feeling you can't describe. I mean, it's like, it wasn't necessarily this way the first time, but when it's right, the best music you write never feels like you're writing it. It feels like you're just transcribing it. Like it's already there right. and you're just transcribing it. So when you hear an orchestra do that, it's like you've channeled something much greater than yourself and you're the vessel. And you realize that there's this great thing, then you were the vessel and you feel really honored, actually. You feel honored that you were chosen. <laughs> and it sounds super creepy, but it's a higher power. You feel like you're channeling something greater than yourself. And you feel lucky that you were the person that the universe entrusted with this. At the time, did you write only the piano part or was it all the parts? No, I wrote, I wrote all the parts. The orchestration oh, wow. was not very good because, you know, like... <laughs> 
I remember I transposed the horns into the wrong key. <laughs> and that didn't sound very good when it came out. <laughs> so you, at that age, you could hear it. You could hear the mistake or... Uh, oh, well, yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's the mistake that anybody could have heard. <laughs> like that way, okay, those are, that's not the right note. There's no way that's the right note. No. The thing about transpositions, boy, this is a super geeky thing. Like they say, you know, oh, well, it's a, a fifth higher, but that's for the player. They always talk about it for the player, for the composer, it's vice versa. Oh. So whatever they say, you know, oh, you know, that instrument's a fifth higher. Yeah, if you're reading, if you're writing, it's the other direction. No matter what they say, it's the other direction oh. if you're writing. I got confused because <laughs> someone told me one of the, you know, like I said, well, how do I do the horns? They go, oh, you know, it's they're a fifth higher. I'm like, okay. And so I did a fifth higher, but I should have done it the other direction. And even that right now when I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, what is it? It's written a fifth higher. So that means they see the problem yeah 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 exactly <laughs> that's why i'm not a composer right but at least I, every time i go to do it i know okay this is that thing and i can't get it reversed like right. i did when i was 13 <laughs> so as far as composing for film yourself is it true that really wasn't kick-started until your initial work with jordan yeah well so i talk about sound of music music and film together that's how i learned about music was that way but and I went to college and I thought that I would always write for, even my concert music, it's, I consider it storytelling. Like I'm taking you on a journey, even though with concert music, the audience gets to help imagine what that journey is and what everything means. And it's, so I always considered it that, and I was doing in college, I was doing radio commercial, TV commercials and things like that. And so that was really great experience. Got to write all kinds of different kinds of music and have deadlines. Um, but I never got any traction in the film industry, just like. I had just hit dead end after dead end. And you mentioned at the beginning, I wrote this piece called Global Warming, which people liked. And so other orchestras started playing it. And so you have opportunities in life and you need to walk through the doors that open for you. Sure. Right. So you do enough of that. And that's what I was doing. I was doing mostly concert music. You go into the concert music world and then you learn about applying for grants. That's part of how you build your, not only how you ha feed yourself. If you receive a grant, that's a great thing. It shows that people believe in your work. So mm. grants now often come with a teaching component. Like you don't just get a grant to just write music because that implies that art is valuable. So what the government does, is they say, well, you know, you can, we'll give you this money, but also as part of that, you're going to involve kids in it because then that's education and everybody can generally agree that education is good. Where They may not agree that art is worthy, but education is important. So most of the arts grants have an education component. So you get a grant and then you do the education component as part of it. And I enjoyed teaching and it's inspiring and it is important. And so then I had opportunities to do more teaching. I and mean, I've just talked about taking the opportunities that the universe gives you, right? So I got more and more teaching opportunities. And before long, I was teaching and I was head of music at this private K through 12 school in Santa Monica called New Roads, which I'm not doing any longer, but I did it for like 11 years and it was amazing and a great time. And and a huge part of my life. So I learned and discovered my passion for teaching out of riding the horse in the direction it was going. Right. You say. A lot of schools have lost their funding for music programs. Well, yes. Yeah. Teachers are tremendous heroes. And I can say that not because I want, but because I mean, I was at a private school, so I had an easy time compared to a lot of teachers and what they go through. Then at my school, they care very passionately about the arts. So we had, you know, a lot of support for the arts and a lot of interested art students and all those things that would make it a lot of fun to be able to teach like that. 
What do you think the impact will be of the loss of these music programs that the kids aren't getting to experience anymore? It's just felt across the society. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I it's mean, huge. music is, gosh, all of us. I know that everyone listening to this podcast, no matter who they are, loves music. It's yeah. just a question of what kind of music. Everybody's passionate about music. And you may disagree with me about what is great music, but boy, you love music. And the music you love is just a key part of your life. The only way that you, no matter who you are, can appreciate more kinds of music is with some education. And we can't just leave that up to people to stumble into. I mean, there's, there are people who will tell you all the time about some great music that they just kind of stumbled into. And that's great. And you should do that in life. But imagine if someone had helped you do that a little earlier in life when you were still formative. And music plus, music is really a language. And think about languages you know. The language you speak the best are the ones you learned when you were between about the ages of two and seven. And that language is never going to leave you ever. It's just part of your DNA. And any language that comes after that is, you know, you can be really good, but it's still secondary. So you want music to go into your kids when they're too young to even process it in the left brain. You know, you want it to just flow in like language. So that means any music you can expose a child to when their language is developing they're going to have that for their life. It's so awesome. All, well, three of our kids all play instruments. Like one plays violin. God bless you. She and started, <laughs> when you're five, you pick your instrument. Yep. You have a drummer, yep. a violinist, and a pianist. In your family, you have a drummer, yep. a violinist. That's perfect. Yeah, my son <laughs> loves the drums. Like that is his passion in life. I have no doubt in my mind that he is not going to be drumming for the rest of his life because it's his everything. It's his escape. It's so important. And I'm so bummed that it's not a part of school anymore. At your kid's school, are they not having so to play drums? or what's When they've only been through elementary, when my daughter first started in kindergarten, they had an orchestra program and that's how I got her started. And after first grade, they got rid of it. They didn't have the mm. money for it anymore. So I decided, I'm like, this is really important. She's really loving it. And then I got a teacher. But all those other kids, I know a lot of other kids didn't follow through. The parents exactly. didn't think it was important and didn't, the kids didn't stick with it. It's tragic to me because there are potential great musicians there that won't yeah. happen. Right. And or there's just really that's what I talked about, the appreciation of music and society and being able to feel, you know, you don't take music lessons to become a professional musician. You do it to be able to express yourself and right. to be be able to appreciate art in general throughout life and to understand the need for, you know, of caring for your soul. Like that, that's why you learned about music. So and it's funny, like about 10 years ago or so back when Steve jobs was still around, he had some quote through Apple that said something like one in two households has a musician, somebody, but some kid playing piano, guitar, something, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a big number. That's, you know, that's half of everyone, right? Yes. Pretty much. So what's the, problem like why isn't this you know integral to you know, k through 12 for example because when i was young music was there right and now i don't see anybody you know with the exception of the lauren's kids you know anybody else you know where they have they have to pick an instrument like a trumpet or piano or something and, and play along you know for a certain period of, or year or something you know right and it's tough for so i'm a professional musician and i music is in my dna 
Now, did I want to practice my instrument as a kid? Hell no. (laughs) I didn't want to practice. I was hating having to practice. Hating. But, and it wasn't that if they had really asked me, okay, we'll give you the permission to walk away and never play again. Now, I wouldn't have chosen that. But did I want to sit there right at that moment when Gilligan's Island was on? No, I wanted to. I did not want to work. But they made me. And then I'm not sorry. And they're not, they weren't bad parents. They were good parents. But I bring that up because if your kid's not being taught music in school, are you going to take on as a parent when you have everything else to battle with your kid about? Are you going to take on, you're going to buy them music lessons and then you're going to force them to practice. Amen. (laughs) Like, right. You know, like that's a lot to take on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and yet that's how great musicians happen. Great musicians don't wake up going, Hey mom, I'm going to practice violin six hours a day. That's not how kids are. It takes an effort to produce that. And if it's not in school, it makes it even harder on parents. Anyway, you can tell. I'm a fan of music in the school. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. So take us back. So you were at New Roads and somehow you end up getting connected with Jordan. I was teaching, but I was also, I would get concert commissions, you know, and I would do my concert music and my schools were great about when I say, Hey, you know, I've written a piece for orchestra. It's being performed in Chicago, you know, something they'd let you go for that. That seemed like a valid reason to take off school for a couple of days. And then uh, some of my orchestral pieces are on YouTube, like things are. And I had dozens of views. And one of those dozens of views <laughs> turned out to be this guy named Jordan Peel, wow. who was um, looking to direct his first film. And he was known as this brilliant comedic actor writer. But little did people know that he was actually secretly the world's biggest horror and suspense fan. And with all the smarts that he had with writing for comedy, he actually had all of that, those brains as applies to horror and suspense and had seen every horror film ever made and knew their scores and understood why each of the, he was a student of both the film itself and their score. Like he understands why the score works as much as he understands <laughs> oh, anything. Right. Okay. So this guy had written this script, <laughs> which he had, he says he spent eight years writing and he had gotten a deal with Blumhouse because Blumhouse knows good opportunity, right? And they had green-lighted his uh, script and he was going to direct. And somehow he saw my video on YouTube of one of my orchestra pieces. And so he made the producers hunt me down and call me. So I get a call and you let it go to voicemail because you don't answer your phone, right? And uh, my voicemail was this producer saying, Hey, (laughs) I... (laughs) Uh, you know, and he said that he was a producer from, you know, Blumhouse. And so, so I live in LA, right? So, you know, like a producer calls you, like, of course a producer calls you. <laughs> We're all, you know, everyone's a producer in Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, yeah. They want to do lunch, you know? Right. So <laughs> I listened to this voicemail and it's very, it's very amusing. So I call this friend of mine because I didn't even have IMDB. I like, I didn't like, why would I? I'm a teacher. But this friend of mine has IMDB. So I called my friend Kirk and I said, this guy says he's a producer called me. So let's look him up and see like he's, uh, this. I'm being punked. I just want to see like, <laughs> yeah. You know. right. So he looks him up. He goes, hey, this guy's a producer for he's a post-production supervisor for Blumhouse. He's done like 60 films. I'm like, no shit. You oh. <laughs> oh, you can swear. It's all good. Oh, Like, so. I thought, well, okay, well, I'm being punked, but this is a really good punk. Like, they put some effort. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> they had a whole fake IMDb yeah. page and you everything. Know, like, and, I, you know, you got to salute someone who's really committed to their <laughs> punk, right? So I thought, well, I got to call this guy back. So I call him back, and, he's <laughs> and he said, 
you know, you probably weren't expecting this call. He says that I said, no, you're, you know, you're right. I wasn't. He said, have you heard of Jordan Peele? And I said, yeah, I've heard of I've, I've, Keen Peele. Yeah, Peele. That. He said, well, we've hired him to uh, direct his first horror movie for us. And he's written the script. He said, would you be interested in us? Can we send you the script? Are you interested in reading it? You know, and he explained, he said, Jordan would be maybe interested in having you do music and we want us to send you the script. I'm like, of course. I mean, sure. Well, I had nothing to lose, right? If you look back on it in retrospect, I got sent what was to become the Oscar winning script for best <laughs> yeah, <right>. original <laughs> screenplay right. out of the blue. And that script was just like, so a lot of times there's a lot of difference between a script and the film, right? But in this case, the script for Get Out was about 90% what you actually see in the film. Wow. Like that was a, it was a great screenplay. And I read that and I just thought, what do you have to do to win an Oscar? Because <laughs> this script is amazing. Yeah. So, of course, I, you know, I said, yes, I want to, I'll sure I'll have lunch with him. And so we met for lunch and Jordan is just as funny and as smart as he comes across in all of his stuff. You know, he's just, he's a great guy. And we had this great conversation about what is scary music. And it was clear to me that he had thought through that script, like, he knew every line of that script and not, not just that he knew it like memorized, but he knew how it related like, you know, he knew how the line on page 12 related to the line on page 56 wow. related to the line on page 89. Right? Wow. In this talk about film music or, you know, what scary music he said, you know, I really want the African-American voice to be present both literally and metaphorically in the score. He said, but the problem with African-American music is that it's all got this sense of hope to it. And I'd never heard it. Somebody say that. And I, oh. then I, I'm instantly, you know, you hear, you hear someone say something like that. And you think, and I flip my mental Rolodex flips through all music I've ever heard. Right. <laughs> right. And I think, wow, I think he's right. You know, that's a really profound statement. Huh. So while I was chewing on that. He says, I want you to drain all the hope right out of that. You can't have any hope. It's got to be hopeless. And so I said, it sounds like you're talking about like gospel horror. And he said, yeah, like he liked the idea of that. And I didn't know what that was. That's mm -hmm. not a thing. That was just what we came up with as kind of a buzzword of the style of music we were looking for. So, so I went home and I did a couple demos because I was sure that when he got back to wherever he got back to, you know, and he told the producers, I met that composer and I think it's going pretty well. You know, like they would say, okay, so we don't hire our little internet friend to score our movies. That's not how we, that's not how we make movies, Mr. Peel. I know you're new. <laughs> but So I thought for sure they were going to fire me when he got back to the studio. So, of course, I had to do demos to sh so that he could say, no, but look, you know, here's this thing. So, I did a couple demos, and one of them was the tune that became the title track to Get Out, Sikiliza Kwawahenga. Yes. That was one of the demos. So, he hadn't even shot Get Out at that point, so he was just about to go away and shoot it. He did that, and then he was editing, and so months went by. But then when I went to see the uh, rough cut... Siki Lisa was the main title was in the film. And so I thought, well, okay, I'm not fired yet. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So my whole goal was just to not get fired <laughs> and have the film open with, and still have my name where it said music by. So, so what was that process like for you? I mean, the, the movie's picture lock, not picture lock, but it's everything's shot and done. Right. You get a cut of it to start your scoring process. Right. Right. So how do you begin that process? Where I started was with the um, hypnotism scene. Oh, yeah. yes. Nice. And there's a lot intense. going on in that. I mean, exactly. there's the dinging of the cup. There's yes. the rain. Exactly. 
And the reason I started with that is because, you know, you're picking up exactly why. Because there's a lot going on in that yep. scene, right? It's super critical to the movie. And I knew that if I... And plus, the scene is genius. The scene is genius. It's iconic. I mean, it's right, gonna, it's, right. they're going to be talking about it forever. It's, right. And I knew that going into it because, I mean, even in the rough cut of it, you could see that the, like this is an iconic scene. Yeah. I thought, well, the music and the acting, the writing's masterful because, you know, the guy sits down and he's skeptical of hypnosis and he knows, right. right? And like, what scene have you got where he actually, and what happens is the audience is hypnotized during that scene too. That's why it worked. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought, well, the music has to be every bit as good as the acting and the writing in the scene. You know, like I can't be the weak link. So first that, but then also I knew if Jordan likes the music for this scene, then I'll have themes that I can use for the rest of the score, you know, because this scene is so crucial. If this is working, this will tell me a lot about what will work. So I started with that. And he said, I want silence to be part of the score. That was one of the, for his first mandates. Like in the sunken place, that's why you hear a chord and then there's this big pause. And then there's another chord and a big pause. That was one of the first things I did for him. I said, how about these chords? And I was on the piano. He goes, I like that. And I was like instantly, oh my God, what did I just do? Because that, I'm using that, you know? So, and then we kept those big giant pauses in it. And he would often, a lot of his notes sometimes are places where he wants there to be space. And so that's something I've gotten used to in the course of these two films. Is that one of the secrets? Because I noticed that your composition work on those two films in particular, there's incredible performances happening on screen. Let's take that hypnotism scene, for instance, and Chris has got that one tear coming down the face. It's just an incredible scene, right? The performance is amazing. Your score augments it, but it doesn't get in the way of the performance of what's going on. Is that silence part of achieving that, do you think? Yes, but it's, that's a side benefit. I think the, primary reason I think that it's important to Jordan is because it's so fucking scary when it's in the right place. (laughs) I mean, and he knows where those places are. I feel like I do, but part of my job is to give the director more than they need to tell the story because you can always slide the fader down, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's much harder to go. You know, I wish I had music here. I mean, there, there are things we can do when the director says that, but your job is to give them you want them to have stuff to make a judicious choice about. So choice implies that you have more than what you need. So there are places where he will, like in us, for example, the uh, Zora. Yes. So Zora is the daughter. Yes. And each of the doppelgangers, I'm not sure if this is clear from watching the movies, but really each of the doppelgangers have names. And so Zora's doppelganger is named Umbre, which is a super creepy name. <laughs> um, so Umbre has is stalking Zora because they're runners, right? So Red says, little girl, run. And Zora takes off and then Umbre chases her. And there's that scene where they meet up at the car. Yes. Right. And so, I mean, I knew Jordan wants space, right? So (laughs) there was lots of space, but there were just a couple of extra notes. And Jordan like, no, we don't need that one. (laughs) And it was stuff. They were just little things, but I had worked on them and I'm like, made a little sad face you know oh yeah (laughs) yeah. he said and he said and this is where he's but he's one thing that makes him a great director also is that i mean he's a genius but he also doesn't care a good idea like he listens to the audience i think it's his improv background oh interesting yeah. yeah like he doesn't like if there's a good idea he doesn't care if it comes from the head of the studio or the guy sweeping the floor like a good idea is a good idea wow. and he's always open to it. So test screenings, he really learns from 
I think he looks forward to them and like he looks at a, a chance to like learn what he needs to do from the audience. At the test screening, he had taken out the music of this scene, you know, of Zora and Umbre uh, with a car when then, then Umbre drops down, right? And you don't know where she is. <laughs> right. And that's where I'd had a little music and Jordan had turned it off. And then after the test screening, I wasn't at the test screening. He said, no, we're going to do that dry. I said, oh, but that little, that little sound. Because, I mean, the sound was cool. He said, no. He said, but at the test screening, he said, you should have seen people were climbing on their seats. Oh, <laughs> they were so yeah. freaked out. Yeah. And so he knew, like, this yeah. scene plays so well silent that, you know, it's like putting a hat on a hat. Like, you don't need to do it. So <laughs> it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything I did was, like, going to be, it's already perfect. We don't need music. That's the end, you know, so. How important is it to you to seek out unconventional instruments and sounds? It's a requirement, really, because... <laughs> Ultimately, what's scary is what's the is the unknown. The unknown's what's scary. It's got to be a sound that you can't place, but that sounds like it could be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, just, that's the magic, right? The alchemy is finding out how to make it work. Exactly, right? yeah. Like, and so now that I've had to think about all those things a lot, it's something that you don't know what it is, but also it has to sound like it could be alive. Repetitive things are that's a machine. You know, if you're outside your house. And there's a repetitive going on outside. You know, that's the air. It's the water heater. It's the air. Yeah. That's not scary. That's relaxing, actually. Yeah. But if there's a thing that just like goes. Yeah. Right. Like, like, no symmetry. Yeah. Freaks you out. Right. That's whatever that is. It's alive. (laughs) And so then I have to know some things. I have to know how large it is. I have to know whether it's inside or outside. I have to. There's all these things I have to know. So that's scary. Hmm. So therefore. In general, the sounds that are scary are the ones that are going to have some aspect of that organic, live unpredictability about them. Right. So that's fascinating. (laughs) Now, as dealing with Jordan, who, like you said, encyclopedic knowledge of every horror film, every Mm -hmm. horror score, does he use references to communicate ideas to you that he might not be able to explain in a musical way? He's really good at expressing himself and he doesn't. I actually enjoy some of the, I, I wish I w- could write down some of the ways that he explains uh, <laughs> what he likes or doesn't like about sure. music. Because it's, like, it's like, really funny. A lot of times it's really I just really imagine funny. like more, more psycho, less exorcist, <laughs> now, more Jaws. You know that, well, that would be a good way for a director to communicate actually, I think, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't do it in terms of that. He t- does it in terms of, there's a scene in Get Out where Chris is tied down in the basement and then that tragic video comes on oh, the, right. on the on the old TV, right? And it's a video made by the father of the, like Rose's grandfather, who came up with this freaky process, right? right? And it's his little indoctrination video to the the victims, right? And in the background, there's this really tragic music that plays, and I wrote that music. Oh wow! <laughs> and it's actually the theme for it's the theme that plays in the hypnotism scene. But it's done in this way that you would never, because it's all like, so, and here was my instruction to that, for that music. Jordan said, it needs to sound like a really bad ED commercial. (laughs) 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 And I I said, Jordan, I'm your man. I I am your go-to guy for all of your really bad ED commercial needs. (laughs) Wow. So, so that's the kind of note I'll get from him. So how fun, like it, not only is it funny, but then it's creatively inspiring, you know, because he doesn't say I want it to be a guitar or I want it to be happy or I want it to be, you know, 
he doesn't he, does, he won't say that he'll give you some really inspiring you know visual sure that goes to the emotion of the character that helps you understand what you know how to inspire yourself to come up with the correct emotion so and also in describing it like the way you talked about it it really gets you thinking that out of the box right like and that's so the composer director relationship is really crucial and i think the reason that directors use the same composer again and again is because the relationship is so intimate it's that mostly directors are visual people and so they feel comfortable talking to the dp and to the costume designer the the production designer these are all jobs that they feel like they share a common language and that maybe they've done that job themselves maybe the director has been a dp on something or maybe right. the you know it's much less common that the director was a composer and it's not it's not that it's never happened but you know like it's unique so here's this crucial person the composer and they all they know how important music is in telling a story everyone does you know it's, it goes right to your heart and yet the director it's the director's story and they have to hire this other person who basically is just going to go to the heart of their audience that's all it's not like it's important right so <laughs> and directors are by nature you know they want to control things because they've got this vision so you have to give up control to this person for something that's super crucial that goes to your audience's heart and you don't feel like you could do it yourself you know it's really hard so i imagine it's kind of like finding a therapist sure you know like if you're looking for a therapist and your friend says you know i got a great there and you trust your friend right <laughs> if you trust your friend you'll go and you'll meet the therapist because you trust your friend right? right but if you're not feeling the vibe with that therapist <laughs> Is there anything your friend is going to say that's going to get you to go back? No, there's no. nothing. Like, if you don't feel the vibe, it's over. And that's the composer-director relationship. <laughs> like, you got it. It's somebody that you got to have to be able to say, you know, I just really feel this about this person. I feel like that she's going through this and that she, you know. And you got to trust that the other person will go and, and just, like, go to the piano or something. And just, like, say what you've just said in music. It's really hard. So I don't want, and I don't think any composer wants a director to say, okay, I want a guitar and then I want it to be, I want you to use minor chords and I want it to go at this speed and it goes like, da, da, da. I, you don't want that because that sounds like an assignment, you know? Sure. Right. What you want is you want him to say, it needs to sound like a really bad ED commercial because <laughs> I could give you 20 different versions of that answer. You and, know? and anybody you ask would give right, 10 right, different versions right, of their right, answer right. of that exactly too, right i yeah. mean any art you have if whatever your art is if you you know if you paint or if you dance or if you an instruction like that would give you options of how to realize that and you know maybe the first three would not be what he wants but the fourth one is exactly you know like you you're coming from that inspired place rather than here's my assignment it needs to be this and it needs to be that so i always encourage directors to speak as they would to actors or to the DP or you know, like really to anybody just speak in a way that helps you describe what the character's feeling. And it's my job to get it. You know, it's my job to know how to translate what you say. And so I, I always say, if I'm not understanding them, I say, okay, give me, I say, what is the character feeling or g give me some actions or emotions that describe the scene? Because to me, I think music is always portraying either an action or an emotion. And so if I really need them to give me a verb <laughs> or, or an adjective, I say, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That way. I wanted to go over, there's a piece in Get Out that's really beautiful. It's the love theme with Chris and Rose. It's based on this kind of lead string instrument. And then it's got these wonderful, almost visual flourishes throughout, uh, like these little chimes or something. And it gives it almost a very theme park ride feel. There's a real visual oh, wow. element to it. And I was wondering, what's the importance of those smaller details in regards to their effect on immersing an audience member into a film or score? It makes it feel three-dimensional. You want your your music to feel three-dimensional in a way that you know people want the visuals to feel three-dimensional. So... There's foreground elements and background elements and midground elements, and you, it fills the space. So that melody, it's a very simple melody, and it's a love theme, but it's about a relationship that we really know isn't going to work out. We just, we don't know why, but you can tell, they love each other and they're so nice. <laughs> but the music is telling you, it's, it's I don't think it's going to work out, but why? I don't really see any signs. What? Why do? Why do we think it's not going to work? You see, so it draws you in in that way because it's not the hallmark love theme you're expecting. But it also it has to genuinely beautiful because they are in love, or at least one of them is. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and and the other one's such a good actor <laughs> of being in love. It's like almost as good, and right. so it has to be beautiful. So there, that was that. But then. And like the bells aren't deliberately meant to be a thing, but they're just because the melody is so simple and there's this space in it, you know, it goes, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) And it's in there that you become aware of the little, I actually call them bluesy wind chimes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Because there's, they're meant to. You know, we do get out in concert now. We do it live to picture and we've done it in several cities so far and it's super, it's really cool and fun to do. And so I had to write out in the score to someone how to do this. And I said, act like you're, it's a bluesy wind chime. And I have them kind of like twitch their fingers on the keys, like kind of as, as if the, as if, you know, because wind chimes are like that. It's like (laughs) they're hitting each other randomly. So that's what I'm trying to get the player to do. They're not meant to represent anything in the film, really. It's just meant to put you in the, in the vibe of this pretty yet sad music. Ah, gorgeous. Let's get into 2019's Us. So it starts, actually starts with a lot of no music. And when the theme kicks in, it's elevated by that silence, I find. And it comes crashing in and it's this chant. It sounds like a religious experience. It sounds like you ended up finding some cults that lived in the mountains somewhere and invented their own instruments and are just hey, playing this good, thing good, and you're good. just like, oh my God. Good, yeah. So talk about making that cue. That's a really scary image that it painted in your mind. Yeah. Right? Like, like that's like... Well, you're hearing a different language, but it's like a choral piece. It's It gives that religious tone to it. Yeah. Okay, so... One great thing about Jordan is that he likes doing credits old school, you know, at the beginning, like which not many people do anymore. I've never even asked him about this, but he did it in both Get Out and Us, and I don't think he had 
I think it was a choice. I think it was a deliberate choice. So anyway, he just, about us, he said, after I read the script, he just said, so obviously it's about duality. So give me some examples of instruments that don't belong together. And that was all he said. So then I went away and I did, I did some demos of instruments that don't belong together. And I know he likes really freaky music. So the idea is really to just deliberately do stuff that you know instinctually isn't going to work. <laughs> because that's how you come up with stuff that does work. You just do like, I think, well, that won't work. And then I just try it. And, and sometimes I'm right. <laughs> it doesn't work. But then sometimes I'm, I'm wrong and that's great. So also, I don't always know what Jordan's going to like. So I don't try to, like I sent him these and I didn't even label them. and I didn't even say where I thought they went in the film because why should I bias him? Maybe he'll love it. Maybe he'll hate it. You know? And I, so we just send him these things, but I knew that there was going to have to be an, opening title because that's how he does that so and he said one of the things he he loves to ruin things for people <laughs> he, he clearly loves to ruin things for people uh, he, he may not describe it that way but <laughs> he likes to take things that are not scary to you and explain to you why you ought to be fucking terrified that's of them, great right so one of them <laughs> in us one of them is he said i wanted to start with children's voices he said that'll oh, freak people man. out so of course, I thought, oh, great idea, Jordan, we'll start with, so it was a, the song of the tethered, you know, it had to be a song that somehow represented the tethered, even though we hadn't met them yet. What do we want people to know about them when they haven't met them? What do we want the audience to know? It's like, well, there's a lot of them and they're organizing and they're pissed off. <laughs> so what says more like a whole bunch of people are organizing than a march? Anybody who's marching, you know, there's a whole lot of people and they're all doing the same thing and it's usually not good. <laughs> so that seemed to be a thing that I would need to do. And also a march with children's voices. Well, that's just really creepy too. Yeah. <laughs> that's an additional creepy element. But then it needed to be kind of multicultural because of that great line that uh, Red says when, when Gabe asks her, who are you people? And she cocks her head and she says, we're Americans. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and America is a multicultural place in a way that's very terrifying. <laughs> so the march needed to feel like it was coming from all of us in that terrifyingly multicultural way that we are. How can you do that with a march? And Jordan and I talked about that a lot. And we thought that you'd do it with different, you know, singers of different backgrounds or singing of music of different cultural backgrounds but the problem but I tell you the problem is that what gives you the sense that something's of a one culture or another is really the language because the language well songs in a in a certain culture the melody vibes really well with the language of that culture you pick a culture the reason that its music sounds the way it does one of the reasons it does is because of the way the language of that culture works I wouldn't know who, which came first, you know, you need a musicologist, but clearly great songs in any language, the music and the lyrics wrap around each other. So you can't write a march in a culture that doesn't march, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So here's what I, so what I did to solve this problem was I thought, okay, it's going to sound like it's Latin no matter what. And I wrote words and they're nonsense words and they're not, unlike Siki Lisa Kwawahenga, which is in Swahili and means something, the march in us is deliberately quote nonsense but as i was writing it i realized there's no such thing as nonsense and i suddenly had this huge respect for dr seuss that i hadn't i mean i had always respected dr seuss but even more because there's no such thing as nonsense any syllable anything that comes out of my mouth 
you're going to interpret that sound in some way. Any sound I make. Because that's just what we do. Like, like babies cry. We have to figure out what yeah. the heck that means, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's our yeah. first challenge. A yeah. baby goes, Wah! and you have to know that that one is the change me versus the feed me. So every sound means something. So there's nothing, no such thing as nonsense. And a march is culturally specific. And I just couldn't get out of that. So I thought, well, I'm going to write the nonsense. But I'm going to, first of all, I know Jordan likes space. So I'm going to slow it way down. The march is going to go really slow. Because every word will have significance. And then, so in between that march, I put this really funky beat (laughs) that was just as funky as I could make it with that, but that also sounded tribal, but not in a way that you could pin it to one tribe. Right. Right. But yeah, that really made you want to, made you want to move your body. Because I thought of the idea of people moving their bodies to what is a march. Like that's the multicultural I was like, yes, that's what it needs to be. So it's a multicultural funky march. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's like you invented the language of the tethered in that, and it became the theme for it. So at what point in the genesis of the film did that march come? Did that come before that was, filming I, again, even started? That was, I did the demo before he did the filming. He actually played that march for everybody on set which was wow. super cool yeah. oh my gosh wow. yeah yeah so it was your music was literally in the fabric yeah. of what was going like, on from the and beginning that's one of the great things about jordan is that he considers you know before they shoot a movie they go do pre-production and pre-production is filled with lots of production design where the director's getting looks of every set and every room and all the costumes and Yet a lot of times music isn't part of the production design. Music's done at the end. Very and, end, yeah. And music does have to be done at the end because it, music it takes place in time. And until you have the, the movie edited together, you can't really score it because it's got to match the timings of the film exactly. But talk about production design. I mean, you need to design the music. To me, that makes sense that you do it at that part at the beginning. And that's how Jordan likes to do it. And I'm happy to help because... It means that you get to kind of participate in this, you know, all the actors and all the other production, they go on set and they have this bonding experience and they're all together and it's super cool or, or whatever challenges they have, they do them together. And then the composers at the end, you know, in the dark room by him or herself, all <laughs> like missing out on all the actions. So if you feel like you can be a part of the production, that's really cool. I actually, on us, I got to go on set. It was my first time on a, oh, oh, cool. a on a set of a, you know, of a professional film and it was just. I'm like, hey, I'm part of the group. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> what well, set? Do you remember which yeah. set it was yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. it was a couple of them. I was at the, on the set of the um, the house, the summer house that they rent, yeah. that they go to. And what scenes were they filming? Where was that? That was Lakeside, right? Uh, it's supposed to be Lakeside. Supposed to be. It was actually, yeah, it, it was a location in Altadena, actually. Oh, no that's way. wild. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. so funny. Wow, I yeah. don't know it was that local. That one was was really local to where we are right now. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it would, and I was having a little bit of sense memory driving up here. <laughs> but they were filming, I think they were filming the part where they get at, where they first get out of the car when they arrive. So okay. they, were, they were out, the actual cameras were out in the driveway. And so I could be, we were all hanging in the house because they were filming in the driveway. Then there was the, so at the end, the, the pas de deux, there was this amazing young woman who was the ballerina uh, who played Adelaide at age, you know, 14 or so as uh-huh. a ballerina. And she is just the most amazing young woman. I mean, I was at the scene where 
they filmed her dance, not in the tethered's world, not the underpass, but the over, you know, the actual where she was on stage. And oh, that so was they like, would oh, cut to that scene in right. the middle and, of the and it's and all of that and at the in the film, all of that they're cutting back and forth between at least four different sets. They're cutting back and forth between her dancing as a teen on the stage versus her dancing as a teen in the underpass versus both Adelaide and Red battling it out. Right. Which of course was the same actor, so that's really two different <laughs> completely different <laughs> thing. Wow. And all of that is cut all back and forth together so that you don't even realize how many different, you know. So anyway, I was on I was on that side and that was at the Wilshire Ebel Theater, which is down in LA. It's a beautiful theater. And actually the entire Nutcracker, the reason that piece in the in the score is called the pas de deux is because a pas de deux is a part of a ballet where the main ballerina, the principal ballerina and the male dancer, they have a, you know, they have to have a duet because, you know, and that duet is called the pas de deux in French. So originally in the script, that whole scene was going to be done to the pas de deux from the Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky, which is not, which is a famous piece. It's not the one that people think of from the Nutcracker, but it's nevertheless a famous piece. And we were going to horrify that piece like it was either going to be legitimately that piece from the nutcracker without any distortion or i was going to horrify it and make it really terrifying which i was looking forward to it was super fun then jordan realized what he really needed to do is he needed to destroy five on it <laughs> yeah <laughs> not destroy turn it so, into a, the new iconic horror exactly uh, yeah. so, so right. the so the i think his delight at the idea that he could destroy five on it <laughs> totally trumped <laughs> any other any previous idea and it turned out to be really smart too so wow. well well yeah. it's interesting that song in itself when you mentioned duality it's got a call and response in the right. bass line yes, versus the exactly, melody yes, which yeah. is what i when we went to do that and i realized that and i thought this is just too perfect so of course so then how i started was i went dum dum and then i just added space between that and yeah and it's because you know it's coming but you don't know when it's coming <laughs> yeah. yeah right and they're they're stalking each other and they're facing off and there's beautiful tension in that and and at the beginning all it is is just a, it's just playing with the length between the call and the response iconic yeah a big yeah. part of what jordan's films do that makes his films and stories so special is that you take them home with you when you leave the theater Hmm. and you don't get to do that with a lot of movies. There's a lot to digest and there's always a lot to think about. There's also enough ambiguity that is a part of what I think makes his journeys such a head trip. How do you elevate that sentiment musically? Wow. So when there's ambiguity, how does the music contribute to that? Yes. Wow. The music's job is to is to channel the emotion that the character is experiencing and kind of heighten that for the audience so that it's you don't want to tell the audience what to feel, but you want to maybe if something happens on screen and you could have one of four reactions to it, depending, you want to narrow those down for people <laughs> so they're not left wondering in a way that's not going to help tell the story. Like there's sometimes when you're left wondering that's good for helping tell the story. You know, you don't know, you know, in the early part of a film, you're like, that's a clue, but what clue of what? I don't know what's going on. You know, right. like that's deliberate. But there are times when you want someone to know 
okay, this is a clue. <laughs> you know, there's music that says, this is a clue. <laughs> like a minor stinger or something. Right, yeah, or something, you know, yeah. but, but it's because you don't want the audience to miss that cue because right. then they'll be even more confused because they didn't even realize there was a clue. So there are times that you want to tell the audience something like, like this is important is something that music might say, or, you know, of the ways you might feel about this particular thing happening. Here's the way that we, we want you to feel, you know, <laughs> and you may not understand why, <laughs> and that may bug you, <laughs> but this music is telling you that of your emotion choices, this is the one that we think this means. So, and there's a lot of talk back and forth between a composer and director about as a composer, if you're choosing the wrong time to tell the audience which one we want, sometimes the director doesn't want that. Sometimes he wants the audience to be, you know, in which case the music will be thrown out. It's like, no, that's not, we're not going to tell the audience what to feel here. One thing I was learning with Jordan is like, I like the, the music to react exactly to the picture. I feel like that's a really beautiful thing that music can do with picture. And Jordan was always delaying my cues by like a half second. And I'd go and see it with the editor. I'm like, well, you know, okay, the music's late. <laughs> like, it's music's late. And he goes, oh, no, we, we like it there. We moved it there. Oh. <laughs> and after, after he kept doing it, and I thought, well, do people will just think I'm like an idiot. <laughs> like, I obviously don't know what I'm doing, but I, like, I can't like stand with a sign going, Jordan Peele put the music here. <laughs> um, because, and he's a genius, so if I'm disagreeing with him, what am I, right? So then there's that. So I'm like, hmm, Jordan keeps moving the cues later, always. And he was just saying, you know, it's like, he said, I think our ears take longer to process, he said. And I, and I said, it's like thunder and lightning. That's what you're saying. It's like thunder and lightning. Ah. And he said, yeah. And then I, that was like, for me, a complete breakthrough. So now, why did I think of that? Because it's about letting the audience have a reaction before you, with the music, confirm what they're feeling. You know, like, you can see something happen... And you're processing it as an audience member, you're like, hmm. And then like a little time elapses, even if it's only like a half second. And in that half second is when you don't want the music to deny the audience the experience of making that, of processing what they're seeing. Oh, that's see, great. Right? It doesn't, that, yeah, it doesn't inform the right. audience what they should be feeling. Before they get before a chance they feel to it. actually feel it themselves right. and know what they're feeling about it. Right. It accentuates it more. Right. Think, so oh. that was a huge thing I learned from him. And it, it took me the analogy of thunder and lightning to figure that out. But... But that's what it is. You ideally confirm what the audience is feeling. I mean, essentially. So this is, again, a thing where, you know, there was a point that, oh, but it was about ambiguity. Yeah. So really, you can tell that none of this has to do with whether the story has different levels in which it's working and what it all means in the world. It has to do with experiencing a story through the eyes and the feelings of a character. That's what the music's doing. That's the music's job, and then the it's the story itself and how the characters react and what you notice about what that story says in the world. That's where the ambiguity is. It's only going to interest people in that way. You're only going to go home with a story that really resonates with you. You know, it, it, so so the music's job is to set you up through telling the story well to then start making all these associations that you make on your own. Does that make any sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. This past Halloween, I got the 
experience of going through the us maze at Halloween oh, Horror I'm so Nights. glad. Me too. Yes. I did it too. Did you I did it? it? Yes. It was awesome. I, I, they, they filmed me. Oh, no yeah. way. Yes. So it's on, it's on my Instagram. <laughs> okay, I gotta find it. I, I'm, at, awesome. I'm at underscore Michael Abel. So you can go and you can see me get punked by my own shit. <laughs> <laughs> did you have to do anything special with the score for that maze when they brought it to a maze? No, you know, they... I think that the the science, the logistics of creating attractions is actually fascinating. And I actually, I will bridge back when I tell you this story. Yeah, yeah. I actually had the great experience of doing music for a, a live animal show at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. Oh, cool. Oh. And it was cool. It was this fantasy story and you know, this whole, you know, space and performing dolphins and beluga whales and oh. things. And so the idea was the music would somehow sync to these animals' live actions. Like, That's crazy. That is crazy. <laughs> Thank you for saying it's crazy. Wow. <laughs> so imagine, like, I, I have hard enough time hitting timings in a film, right? Right. right. God. Or wild, wild animals. animals. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, so there's a whole story of how we tried to do that for better or worse. But, um, but it was huge. It was huge fun. And I was really, you know, happy to have the experience and now bridging back to what we were talking about oh so attractions how they work and why they work and how they give people an experience is a fascinating art and, and craft and science to me but for the us haunted house there's a whole set of people in charge of that for doing it they do it every year for all these different you know they have like eight different haunted houses or something you can go to wow. so Nobody asked me a thing. Is that's the short version of the story? They, I, they, I just showed up, <laughs> and all the and all the music and all the characters and all of that was already happening. And I noticed when I wasn't getting the shit scared out of me, I was trying to notice how they did the music. And they did a lot of um, they did a lot of sound design over underneath. It was not pure music. You know, it was music in the right places, but it was right. a lot of sound design to do what we were talking about earlier to make you sound like there's something freaky going on and you don't know what it is. So it's so, such a scary maze. Yeah. Well, it was it really it was, felt like you were yeah, there. Yeah, no, it did. And actually, and Lupita went through it too. They I saw go. that. Did I was like, why couldn't I've been there? Oh, which did they put her in? Yes. They, they, they cast they, her. Well, when they first, they, they took her through the maze. She loved it. And, so she agreed to wear the the costume and she learned the, and then she was scaring guests. She yes. came like, it, they, it they had the real so thing. Rad. Oh yeah. my God. Oh, yeah. And of awesome. course the whole cast took pictures with her and the whole thing. Like it was so great. Oh, that's so cool. I know that Jordan Peele got the inspiration to do us because he had a fear of seeing himself. Is there anything that you had growing up that scared you? I was one of those kids who was terrified of everything. I, I had a, record another record that i loved which had it was about i you know little kids go on a journey around the block and they meet people from different countries or something but at some point at the beginning of this record there was a fire engine and i was scared to death of that fire engine i hated that fire engine <laughs> but i loved the songs and the records had this dilemma <laughs> and it was this long play lp and you couldn't skip you had to let it play okay because wow. i'm four and i don't have the ability to pick up the needle and right. move it i'll scratch the record i'm on four so what i do so what i would do is put on the record i knew exactly where the fire engine was when the fire engine came on i would run as far away in the house as i possibly could away from the fire engine and let the fire engine go and then i'd come back <laughs> like, that was the sort of That's kid I was funny. so finally in, in college I had this epiphany I thought you know if they ever let me score a movie it's probably going to be a horror movie because <laughs> horror movies are made on the cheap you know this, oh, they'll pro so, and I thought 
I can't function like this. I can't. <laughs> that's not going to work. So there was a theater on Hollywood Boulevard that played triple features. And they were playing a triple feature of horror movies. And so I made myself go. And this sounds like a movie story. It does. Yeah, it does. And, but I swear I did this. I went and I saw Friday the 13th Part 2 <laughs> and oh. Happy Birthday to Me. And then this film called Final Exam. And I watched all of them and I made myself sit there. <laughs> And I, and I had nightmares all night, <laughs> of course, but then strangely, I was actually, it toughened me up. I was sort of cured after that. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. I know. And that's so not, cool. uh, that's, uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a story that really would make any sense, but it part it would really had to do with that. I was old enough, you know, developmentally, this is the geek, you know, the geek left brain part of it is I developmentally, my brain was old enough to be able to process the information and like not freak out sure because i was like about 19 or 20 yeah. but some people love horror from day one and i don't know who those people are but it wasn't me <laughs> probably you guys i have a feeling yeah, it definitely was, it definitely yeah. was. <laughs> so what are your thoughts i mean now your scores speaking of records like a place like waxwork records is making these mm -hmm. brilliant yeah. editions of your scores and it, the artwork is so great it's I incredible people, like, just yep. buy it for the artwork and get free music with it right. like, it's <laughs> the best it's best it's the best january 13th the oscar nominees are announced and you were getting serious buzz for your work and for someone who That's is what two to three years into their film scoring part of your career like, what does that feel like? Yeah. It says, un it's, well, it's good. <laughs> but, but it's as unreal as the producer calling me on the, you know, on the phone. And right. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's really gratifying because you, as an artist, you you have to, it's this weird balance, especially as a film composer, a weird balance of ego and complete lack of ego. You have to train yourself. With student composers, I would say, you know, if you ask people what kind of music they like, they'll like hem and haw go, well, you know, I like, they, they'll, it'll always start with well, and then it'll go on to this very processed information, but ask them what kind of music they hate. <laughs> all right. And they will tell you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it'll be a really clear list. So I tell young composers, I say, you know, if I ask them what kind of music like, they won't really answer. But if I say, what do you, what do you hate? And they'll tell me, and I'll say, okay, that's what not to do. Yeah. There's your reverse. Like strike that, reverse it, right? Like that's what you do if you want to, that's what great music is. You take the music you hate, really, really analyze what is it that drives you crazy about that music? Like I want you to be specific and we have this whole session where we really hate on music <laughs> and we talk about it in really intense musical analysis, you know, because huh. people with, you know, some language about how to describe it. Right. I said, great. Now you hear what is great music for you. Now you see it's the reverse of this. And so your challenge is to write great music and now you know what great music is because you've just defined it on opposite day and the reason why you'd want to do that is because any three notes you write are either brilliant or they suck it all depends on the context so no one can tell you play any three notes it's probably great or it's like it's equally likely that it's either way and it's your job to know which it is and to take it and put it in the context that makes it great and not suck and that's what you're training yourself to do really and ultimately, nobody else can make that decision for you. Like they can teach you how to get, go there, but you're ultimately going to go there all by yourself. And once you get there, if you're there, well, the entire world telling you that it sucks when you know it's good can't change your mind <laughs> because that's all the work you put in. 
in one definition, that's huge ego thinking that you're the only person in the world that's right. But like, that's how you have an artistic voice is that you have to know when it meets the standard that you've set for yourself, that it's, you know, that it's valuable and it doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. However, if you're going to be a film composer, the minute you write any three notes, you play them for a director and then the director decides whether they suck or not. (laughs) (laughs) And then you instantly take that feedback as gospel and you, and if it, if it's not good, then you, you need to invent and you need to not say, well, of course it's good. I wrote it. You know, like (laughs) I wouldn't give you these three notes if they weren't great. I know the ones that suck and I didn't give you those. But if, if they're not working, you instantly have to go to great. What's not working for you? You know, is it the second note? Is it that, is it the way they all come together? It's like, what is it that's not working? Because I, you know, I'm committed that you that this is going to tell your character's story and you know the when the way you want it told so you have to be but have this ego this tremendous ego and then be completely selfless about giving it away and adjusting to whatever someone tells you so you are in this place where you have ego and you're the only way to get to where you need to go is to be completely selfless at least i always have this feeling of like unlike with my concert music when i know if it works for me that it works with film music, you, I always feel like maybe I'm not doing it right. <laughs> I mean, when the director says good job and you, you try to, you do the best you can, but you're always adjusting in response. So when you put work out and it ends up communicating with audiences and even get recognized by your peers, you know, who've also had to do that same experience of this, this balance, it means a lot. I know yeah. that Steven Spielberg had called Jordan Peele after he saw Get Out and he was a huge fan of your work and he told Jordan that he advised him to continue working with you and I wanted to know how that felt to hear that. I mean, that's amazing. (laughs) That's like the greatest endorsement in the history of cinema. (laughs) What that is. That's what that is. I was, it was stunned. I was stunned by that. I was stunned by it. I don't know how many more movies Jordan is going to direct. He's up to everything in Hollywood. He's producing. He's for different platforms and the industry is changing. We don't even know what platforms are going to be out there. He's at this beautiful creative place where he can do what, you know, whatever he chooses to do, he can do. And so I just know that whenever he calls me, I'll always want to work with him. Always. It doesn't matter what it is, but I have no idea what his plans are. And uh, he's given me, Via working with him, I've got all sorts of opportunity in my own life to do things I never thought I would have the opportunity to do. So I just look at any time he calls me or thinks of me as a huge blessing. And that's how I'm going to approach it. How has working on his films made you a better composer? Oh, because this thing where you have to go back and do it to satisfy someone and you, you know, as much as they give you great creative feedback where you just then you still have to dig deep and find that answer that's a huge challenge and also then you have deadlines in film and so it has to not only do you have to be great you have to be great tomorrow <laughs> yeah that's that's so. the amazing thing that people don't realize is that your deadline you're not given a year to score oh no you got like maybe weeks sometimes <laughs> yeah right? exactly, exactly. That, and that's amazing you get weeks to adjust and fine-tune right and probably not sleep at all or and, very and to get and to get it right i mean it's yeah. like you know that's that's got to be like tons of stress this terrific composer, Austin Wintry, I know him as doing music for games, but he's this guy who he seems always just really like really relaxed and like things are cool, you know? And I, I, I just look at him like, 
he's miraculous. Like I've, <laughs> like I, I've just, I, and I actually ran into him and I said to him, you know, this is how you strike me. He's like, you're just always so relaxed. You're never stressed. And what is it? And he said, I'm careful. I don't use that word because to use it implies that I don't have the greatest job in the world. And so to me, that word implies that I would rather be doing something else. So I have challenges and I have maybe good days and bad days, but I'm careful when I use that word. And I just looked at him like, you know, like this was clearly like Yoda had just got out of the doctor. You know? Great, I love that. Like, you know? I was right. like, wow. <laughs> I got it. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> wow. so it's a very challenging job, but I have, I, you know, I never thought I'd have the opportunity to have these challenges. I, or I had, I'd wanted these challenges, but I had thought that they were just not going to happen in my life. And so now I have these challenges and I'm very happy to have them. Speaking of opportunities, I wanted to talk about something very important that you're a part of. You're a co-founder of the Composers Diversity Collective. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about starting that and what that mission is. Yes. So thank you for asking. After Get Out came out, I was, um, a lot of young composers of color reached out to me and said, hey, you know, great job with Get Out. And we really, and the fact that you're, you know, a person of color just really means a lot to me and is very inspiring. And you know, I talked earlier about how, you know, riding the horse in the direction it's going and listening to what the universe wants, what it's telling you, you should do, even if it's maybe not the thing that you thought you were supposed to be doing maybe. And I thought, well, this is another one of those things. And I was realizing that there aren't a lot of composers of color. And at the same time, Hollywood was being woken up rather harshly (laughs) in some ways about how they're, uh, they need to be more inclusive. And, you know, Hollywood is filled with a really well-meaning liberal people who want to be inclusive and believe that that's a good thing and it's good for the soul, not just for, you know, but right about that time, Get Out was one of the films that proved, guess what? Diversity is also good for the box office. And that was a myth that had been, you know, it's like, well, you know, we would, this is a great idea, but you know, we need to make money. That was always the story before. Well, in the past few years, that's just been shown to be a lie. And so it opened a lot of eyes and a lot, and people got to stop using the excuse that it won't be good box office for why Hollywood can't be inclusive. And also all these new platforms mean that there's more content being made now than ever. I would think it sure seems that way. And people need content. (laughs) You can't, you can't launch a new service without lots of content. And as a result, a lot more people from every background are getting to tell their stories. And when I would go to events, Get Out ended up winning an Oscar. And during the lead up to people thinking that it ought to be nominated for Best Picture, I would go to events and I would meet composers. And the other composers of color were like, hey, you know, <laughs> we're kind of connecting eyes and going, hey, you're one. <laughs> you're in the club. So, so we formed this group. And really, the simple part of the story is the idea is to say if people want to be inclusive and they think it's a good thing, being inclusive means you have to go outside your tribe. It's not so much about, it's not about racism because racism is this word that's coded with all this, you know, it's really about being tribal. Like you go to a party, who are you going to talk to? You're going to talk to people that you think you have something in common with, and you're going to do that by looking at them because you're not talking to them. (laughs) So that's just tribalism. You're going to go to the people you think, oh, if I go up to this person, they'll probably be nice to me instead of be cold to me. And so if you're going to be inclusive, you have to go past that natural instinct. And that's hard. We don't even realize when we're doing it. 
if people are going to be inclusive, people who are not part of the tribe have to help them. And so how we're helping in the Composers Diversity Collective is we're saying, hey, over here, we're here. <laughs> you want to be inclusive? We know, we know all these inclusive people. Are you South Asian? We know South Asian people. <laughs> are you Latinx? We, we got Latinx people for yeah. you. And that's kind of a jokey you know, salesman way to say it, but really people want to be inclusive. They just don't have the res. They just, they don't have the Rolodex. They don't have it in their contacts. If you're going to go make a film, you want to do it with people, you know, you can trust when, you know, when it really goes down, the first person you're going to go to is not the person with no experience who you've never met because that's not natural for people. So to bust that, we all have to be a little trans tribal. We have to go outside our tribes. And that's true of Everybody, no matter their background, everybody's got to be a little trans-tribal. I mean, and it's hard to do, but what we're seeing is that our entire society actually depends on this. Our tribalism is affecting our politics. It's affecting our, like, why can't we solve climate change? It's because of our tribalism. I mean, it's, it's a thing that is, it's affecting everything. So anyway, the good news is that it seems like because of all the new platforms and because of people getting that this is important, that Hollywood is more inclusive than it was just a few years ago. And I don't know if that's going to be, you know, change like that takes a generation or maybe two. And I don't know if it's going to be a permanent shift or if it's only just a temporary shift, but it's a great shift to see. And I see a lot more people of different backgrounds being able to tell their stories and to write music and have opportunity. And so that's, that's a beautiful thing. Well said. I'm curious, composing music aside, but your personal, what's your favorite genre of music in general? What artist inspires you? Gosh. So I'm the guy who said, I hate when people don't answer about what kind of music they love. So <laughs> I've had to practice my answer. Really, It's really kind of like one of the ways I got into composing was like, why does this music, why does this genre sound this way? And why does this genre sound that way? And I always thought, well, I'll know the answer when I write some. So I was always trying to write. If I found some music that interested me. Like I would try to write country music. I would try to write, you know, like Mozart. I would try to write rock and make it sound like, you know, and so what I got out of that was that I like any music in a genre that I feel like is really clever. It's really good in that genre. I'm going to like, because I'm always imagining myself writing it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And the minute I don't like something, that thing clicks into me is like, okay, what is the fix to this music that would make you like it? It's a horrible thing to do to all music to constantly be going, how would you write this? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Deconstruct it. Right. But that's what, I, that's what I do when I hear great music. If I hear terrible music, you know, if it's so terrible, then I'm not engaged. But if it's great music, I'm, then I'm like, oh my gosh, why am I feeling this way? And I'm, I'm trying to break it down. You know, of course it happens with orchestral music because I've had a lot of experience with that. But it happens with great pop songs just if when they're earworms i'm like why is this one going through my head you know what or <laughs> right. like a really great beat that'll just make me want to move just like oh gosh why is that this sounds like this one but that this is fact why does it affect me differently when i'm not trying to listen i listen to chill out music <laughs> <laughs> because i'm trying not you know but then when it's good right then i'm thinking oh wow that's so like listen to the delay and how da, 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 just you know, it's just like hitting me in that right in that spot where everything's okay. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yes. Thank you're an, you. Yeah, you're an absolute Incredible. inspiration. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, I've had the best time being here. So well, I, it feels great. like this will be a three-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, just, well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to all you guys. Amazing. Such, such fun. Thank you.
That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 86. Special thanks to our guest, composer Michael Abels. Follow him at underscore Michael Abels on Instagram and at Michael Abels on Twitter. Be sure to go out and get the soundtracks of both us and Get Out from Waxwork Records and some incredibly cool collectible packaging. If you enjoyed this episode, check out episode 27 with Danny Elfman, episode 39 with the Newton Brothers, and episode 82 with Mike Patton. Music for this episode by Michael Abels. Production tracks from Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, see you on the other side. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.